Lord Jesus, our hearts have so many reasons to be in turmoil this morning. So much strife, so much pain, so many things fill our hearts with anxiety. And yet, right now, we know it is true that your word endures forever. Would you use your word in our hearts? Will you give us a vision of your kingdom in peace and prosperity that is to come? And would you encourage our hearts so that we might live as citizens of that heavenly kingdom right now? We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. It was called the baggage system that didn't get off the ground. Back in 1995, United Airlines had an ambitious project in mind, a new state-of-the-art baggage system to go with their new expansive state-of-the-art airport. It was supposed to be the height of modern automation. Bags would go all the way from the planes, along the miles and miles to get to the terminal, all without a human hand having to touch anything. Only from the beginning, all the resources and planning and brilliance kept running into snags. It turns out the recipe for success is difficult to follow. They spent about 600 million total on the project before throwing in the towel after 10 years. It was pretty bad at certain points. One analyst wrote of it, the baggage system is wonderful except for the tendency it has to enjoy eating people's luggage. I found uh, one article detailing a media day where reporters were shown the new system only to have it launch bags into the air. At one point, a box march, marked fragile was crushed beneath flying baggage. And at another point, a bag burst open, covering the reporter pool in a shower of clothing. Turns out the recipe for success is hard to follow. Even if you have good planning, even if you have lots of resources, turns out if you don't execute, all of it can be for naught. Now that's what makes big successes such a big deal. It's, they are so difficult to pull off. That's what makes our heart long for those success stories when something goes oh so well. Now we come now to the part in 1 Kings where we see one of those famous success stories. The golden age of Solomon's kingdom where everything seems to be going right. We'll see that Solomon and his kingdom have all the recipe, all the ingredients for the recipe of success. They have excellent execution, plenty and peace and a leader with world-class wisdom, and all of these ingredients will come together to make a big success story. As we examine it, we'll learn something of the kingdom of God and how good it is for the biggest of all success stories under King Jesus. We'll go through it in three sections, each following one ingredient of that recipe of success, First, in 1 through 19, we'll see the excellent execution of Solomon and his kingdom. Second, in verses 20 through 28, we'll see the plenty and peace, the plenty and peace that the kingdom enjoyed. And then finally, 
in verses 29 through 34, we will look at the man himself. We will see world-class wisdom in the mind behind it all, King Solomon. Let's begin in verses 1 through 19. That first ingredient, excellent execution. We come at a point in the big sweep of Israel's history that's very significant. Commentator Paul House put it this way, the land that Moses desired, that Joshua conquered, and that David subdued now lay in the hands of a man of unsurpassed wisdom, Solomon. Last week we saw how that wisdom given by God was used to bring justice in a sticky situation, that court case with the prostitutes and the question of the living and dead baby. Well, this week, things take a turn for the administrative. We turn to the organization and administration of Solomon's government. You might say if last week was something you might see on Entertainment Tonight, this week is something you might see on C-SPAN. But far from thinking that that means this will be boring, realize that Solomon, I I get the feeling he could make even C-SPAN must-see TV. And certainly there'll be much we can learn from these administrative matters along the way. Uh, Look with me in verses 1 through 6. We see that Solomon forms a upper-level cabinet. Now, these members of his government at the top level, at one level, are fairly easy to anticipate. You would say they were expected appointments. You have Benaiah. He's over the army. That's expected. He, after all, was the muscle that helped Solomon get to the top. Zadok and Nathan both are rewarded by having their sons in Solomon's administration. We see this pattern of Solomon knowing how to reward loyalty and those who have shown themselves as trustworthy. But there are also some unexpected appointments. Abiathar the priest is found again in this list. Remember, he was banished, stripped of the priesthood. And yet, somehow or the other, he found his way back. Solomon apparently is a king that allows for second chances. There's also this oddity that Solomon has two secretaries. It was very interesting reading the commentaries on this point. It looks like Solomon is drawing from both the wisdom of Jethro and Pharaoh at the same time. He learned that that principle that Moses was taught by his father-in-law Jethro that he needed to delegate. I mean, this whole verses 1 through 19 is Solomon delegating authority into capable hands. But apparently he also picked up some administrative wisdom from his father-in-law in Egypt. The idea of having two secretaries was a known Egyptian practice. One would be for external foreign matters and one would be internal. Solomon seems like he is taking wisdom wherever he can find it and bringing it all together in a perfectly executed plan. There's a top level of government, that's in verses 1 through 6. Then in 7 through 19, you get the regional government. Solomon understands you need people with boots on the ground in order to be able to deal with delicate local politics. He has 12 officers over his whole kingdom. And you might think that those 12 officers would just be one over each of the tribes, but that's not the way he does it. Now, in fact, he redraws the lines. These districts are a careful balancing act. 
uh, geography, tribal uh, loyalties, uh, various sizes and shapes, all of this giving the right people for the right place to exercise their authority. It all shows incredible care the way that Solomon delegates out his authority. He even tackles one of the hardest things any ruler has to deal with, taxes. In verse 7, we see that the 12 officers over Israel, they provide food for the king in his household. Each man had to do it once a month for the king. In other words, the central government was funded by the taxes of these different districts. Once every 12 months, you had to make your payment. We know how much people love taxes, that hasn't changed even in the 3,000 or so years since this happened. And yet, look down at verse 20, which is really the, the point of all of this. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. They were happy. Even under the taxation that one day will prove to be too onerous for them to be able to bear even under different levels of government, even with all the challenges that has come to get the kingdom to this point, the kingdom is prosperous, satisfied, happy. All the order that we see in verses 1 through 19 has served this purpose, to lead to the flourishing of God's people. Now, it's going to take more than administrative excellence, though, for this kingdom's golden age to last. No, it's going to require plenty and peace. That's what we see in verses 20 through 28, plenty and peace. The people are willing to put up with taxation because, frankly, the economy was incredibly good. There was plenty to go around. You can see it in the way that the kingdom is described. It's an expansive kingdom. You saw Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Solomon, verse 21, ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. The borders of the kingdom are expanding to greater heights than they ever had under King David. It is an expansive kingdom, not just in size geographically, but in the size of the people. They are like the sand by the sea. Now that's not just a very colorful way of describing a lot of people. Now that's very specific language that takes us back to a promise God made to one of, the, uh, one of the patriarchs, to, back to Abraham. Back in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, God makes this promise. He says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We see here in Solomon's expansive kingdom that God's promise is being fulfilled. God's people are so numerous that you can't even count them anymore. Like sand on the sea. It's an expansive kingdom. It's also an expensive kingdom. 
Uh, notice in verse 21, it's not just the people of Israel that are paying taxes. It's the nations that Israel has around it under their authority. Solomon ruled over the Euphrates, the land of the Philistines, to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Getting foreign tribes and kingdoms to pay tribute is a, a mark of great authority and prosperity indeed. And all that funding was necessary because frankly, Solomon had some pretty fine tastes. We see the fine fare described in verses 20 through 23 of his kingly table. He has all sorts of wheat and meal and fine meats in abundance. So much abundance that it's almost absurd the level uh, that's described here. Uh, some commentators estimate it would have been enough to feed somewhere between 15,000 and 30,000 people a day. That's the size of Solomon's court and his government. Those under his authority and those in him, his employ have the absolute finest to enjoy. We see this stupefying level of wealth extend even to the royal stables in verses 26 through 28. We're told he has 40,000 horses. 12,000 riders. That is just hard to wrap your mind around. I don't even want to think about how many stable boys you need for that. We also see, though, that there are hints of danger in this, don't we? I mean, the high taxes will serve to be a point of division once Solomon is gone. He may be able to keep the wheels turning, but others that are not as wise as him won't be able to. But even if we remember back to... 1 Samuel 8, remember that Samuel warned that when the people were begging for a king, he warned that when that king came, that his demands on the people would be excessive. Taxes beyond what they could bear. He would take their sons for his army. He would take their daughters to serve in his bakeries. He would use the resources of the land for himself, and they would end up crying out to God as a result. We also remember that there was a very direct warning back in Deuteronomy 17 against the king acquiring for himself lots of horses. Horses back then were the equivalent of modern tanks. They were weapons of war. To have lots of horses would be to have a seemingly invincible army. And yet God's king was to rely on God for his protection there are hints of danger for sure, and yet we shouldn't overstate what the author of 1 Kings intends for us to notice at this point. Right now, the kingdom is at peace. Right now, there is plenty. Right now, God's people are prospering. Look at verses 24 and 25. You see him explicitly make these points. It was a good time. For he had dominion over all the regions west of the Euphrates, from Tiphshash to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. There was peace in the land. Remember Solomon's very name, he is the, he is the son of peace. While his father David was a warrior, Solomon was a man 
that enjoyed peace in his day. How good it is that God's people dwelled in safety during this time. Not only is it a time of peace, it's a time of prosperity. You see that in verse 26. All the horses, all the, uh, sorry, in in the second half of verse 25. Every man is under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. It's not just a chicken in your every pot. It's everyone with a spot to sit down, relax, and enjoy the good things in life. The picture we see of the kingdom of God at this point is a kingdom filled with plenty, with peace on all sides, a kingdom that is satisfied, safe, and flourishing. The only thing left for us to examine is the mind behind, behind it all. I would say this is the most important ingredient in the recipe of excess. That is the world-class wisdom of Solomon in verses 29 through 34. We see that Solomon's wisdom was incomparable with anyone else that was living at the time he was living. We're told that God gave him wisdom and understanding beyond measure and the breath of his mind like the sand of the seashore. That same image You can't even count the gifts of wisdom God had given to Solomon. And the result, nobody could run with him. There is no one living that was anywhere as close, as wise as Solomon. We get a list of people that he surpassed, men that we know very little, if anything, about. All of them ate the dust of the wisdom of Solomon. We also are told of the breadth of his wisdom, Turns out he had uh, so many different interests that you could say that he was the Renaissance man of his day. He wrote books, he wrote songs and poems, some of which we still read to this very day. He was interested in animal life, things that flew, things that crawled on the ground, things that swam, things that slithered. He had a knowledge of botany, Everything from the the biggest trees, the cedars of Lebanon, to those insignificant weeds, the the hyssop plants growing out of the stone. Solomon had a mind that reached far and wide, a mind that was inquisitive, a mind that held on to information and saw the beautiful world God had made and was able is able to see the beauty behind it. Frankly, I think Solomon, it's a shame that he didn't live in a day where Jeopardy was played because he would have cleaned up. He was an incredible mind that led to this incredible prosperity for God's people. And as a result, he becomes world famous. Catch that, that last verse there in verse 34. And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. The nations flock to come hear the wise king in Israel. The nations themselves are being blessed. Just as God had promised would happen to Abraham. So what is it that we are to find from this golden age? From this kingdom that followed the recipe of success to a T? What are we to take from this time of peace and prosperity? 
What are we to take from this wise king as people that live so long afterward? Well, first, I think we are supposed to have a longing for the golden age. I don't know about you, but just taking the time to let my mind go back to what it must have been like, there's a sort of ache in your heart for that time. Charles Spurgeon very helpfully pointed out in one of his sermons on this text, the state which the church lives in compared to the state that which the kingdom of Solomon was in. He said this, the present state of the church may be compared to the reign of David, splendid with victories, but disturbed with battles. But there are better days to come. Spurgeon was telling us that we are to see a parallel. We're more like the citizens in David's kingdom than the citizens in Solomon's at this point, living at the time that we live. We live in a time of great struggle and toil, a time with many battles and yes, many sorrows, and yet we look forward to a day when there will be no more crying, no more pain, when there will be nothing but peace and prosperity and endless joy in a reign under a wise king. I think this week shows us that difference between the time we live and Solomon's time very vividly. Our news feeds have been filled with the horrific story of the killing of George Floyd. Yet another black man killed a police officer kneeling on his neck, unwilling to let up. Just seems like these sort of incidents keep on coming. How long, Lord? How long will we see people innocently losing their lives in the streets? How long will the black community have to lament and wonder if there is value even for their, the members of their community? We see the peace of Solomon so very far away, even as protests have given birth to riots. Even this is recorded on Friday morning as so much of Minneapolis is in flames. All of that bad news should make our hearts ache. It should make us long for things to be different. But the question is, what do you do about all of this. As a someone that lives right here and right now, what can you do about it? Well, first, I think you need to remember that you are first and foremost a citizen of that peaceful kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, a place where there is no abuse of power, no racism, no hatred, no killing, no murder, no disunity. You are a ambassador of that kingdom in the midst of this world filled with strife. Once you remember that, you remember that you are called to do what you can to make it on earth as it is in heaven. To pray that the kingdom would come to this earth. That means that Christians absolutely should be concerned with making sure a killing like this never happens again. That there is no such thing as racism in any form in our country. We should use all of our influence to work to that good end. Now, frankly, though, it is a difficult thing to know how the right way to do that is. What, what is the wise way that you can work towards wisdom? 
Now, let me just give you a, a few words of advice at this front. Not all of us are called to be posting on social media as our way of influence in this world. Some are, but I would say most of us probably aren't. Most of us are better served turning our attention to people we know and have relational capital with and can actually convince through winsome conversation. I would say that most of us need a word toward being bold in those sorts of conversations. To not shy away from the difficulty of addressing things like racial tension and even racism. Use the influence you have for the good of the society the Lord has put you in. Now, I, I think for all of us, though, as we have heard again and again in this series, there is a call here to prayer. It requires great wisdom to know how to take steps that are faithful and the, the best of all strategies to use, even as we do something unto the Lord. And if this is an area where you're not sure the way that you can be on the right side of something, to do something on Jesus' name in a way that honors him, frankly, brothers and sisters, pray about it. Ask him for wisdom. Make it a reoccurring thing on your prayer list. One way you can practice this would be to tune into our prayer and praise tonight at five o'clock. We will pray about the George Floyd situation, all the racial tension that's present in our nation. We will pray for peace. We will pray for wisdom. We will pray for boldness, and we'll do that together. If you're not sure how to do that, come join with us and watch as the Lord answers his people's prayers. Now, as important as it is for us to be longing for the golden age, there's more here than just a negative contrast for us to draw out of this passage. There's also, by way of positive example, there's an application for us here to remember the importance of the seemingly small servants in the kingdom. Remember the importance of the seemingly small servants in the kingdom. Now, it's no accident that this many difficult, tongue-twisting names were listed out in Scripture. Remember, everything in Scripture is God-breathed, given to us to instruct us and train us. One of the lessons that passages like this give us is that God pays attention to people that do the unglamorous, behind-the-scenes sorts of work. I know that supply chain logistics and organization and keeping roles of membership don't set your heart aflutter, but yet realize they are so important to the flourishing of Christ's church. It's no accident that one of the gifts of the Spirit is administration. That means we need people that are able to keep the books. We need people that are good at making sure that we can file in and out of a building in an orderly fashion. We need people that keep track of the church calendar. And we need to keep people like me away from it at all costs. It is a good gift that Christ gives his church. People that work behind the scenes, often without get, receiving any thanks, to keep God's house in order. I just want to take this opportunity to thank a few people that do this sort of behind the scenes work on our church staff. Tim Davis, Christy Blackwell, you have both done an incredible amount to keep God's house in order over these last six months. Thank you both for your service to King Jesus. 
There are so many others that could be thanked. I want to give a charge to each of us where we see someone working in the seemingly small things for the sake of Jesus. Let's, let's thank them, encourage them, and remind them that they, their service is valued in the kingdom. I think that's true at church. I think it's also true in our home lives. Each of us are entrusted with stewardship of King Jesus' resources, and he is honored when we are faithful in the small things. For Memorial Day, I read a article that went into detail about how fallen soldiers are so respectfully prepared for their funerals. There are people that pay careful attention to the smallest of details. There's even someone that goes with a very special little felt-tipped tool and polishes the brass buttons on each button of their uniform. One such person was doing just that, and a family member saw him doing this and said, wow, that's an incredible thing you're doing. I'm sure the family of this soldier will be just uh, so encouraged that you took the time to do that. The man doing the work remarked, oh, oh, sir, the the family will never know about this. Uh, This man is to be cremated. The point was, it was worth doing, even if no one saw the result. So true for us. Even in the small things Jesus has given, you realize he is a God of order. And he delights when you bring order to the things he has entrusted to you. Uh, During the pandemic, our family has had a chance to get, uh, get at a number of organization projects. Precious even got around to very nicely and neatly organizing our plastic cutlery bin. That's worth doing, friends, because our God is a God of order. And the small acts of service, even if nobody knows about them, they are recorded in the books of heaven. Let's remember also, third line of application, that we are to find happiness along the pathway of God's promises. That there's happiness to be found along the pathway of God's promises. One of the tools you need to have in your tool belt when you're reading the Old Testament is called promise and fulfillment. When God promises something, looking carefully at how he actually fulfills that promise. I had a new uh, professor in seminary that used to use the illustration of uh, the way God answers his promises is much like a mountain range. Maybe you were walking up and you see a beautiful snow-capped single peak of a mountain. You could appreciate its beauty. You could be in awe of its grandeur. And yet, if you didn't have the right perspective, maybe if you didn't walk up toward it or even started climbing it, it's possible that behind that grand, glorious peak are a whole range of even more glorious peaks. A whole range to show the display of God's might. So often this is the case with the way God fulfills his promises. He does so in a way that is true and noticeable, and yet, which is just just a warm-up for what's to come. King Solomon, as we already saw, His golden age of his empire, it was a fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. 
a wise king who brought peace and prosperity to his people and that the nations came and were blessed by. And yet King Solomon is just the first peak in a whole range of mountains that show us of the grand glory of King Jesus. Oh, Solomon wrote poems, and yet Jesus wrote this very world into existence. Solomon paid attention to all that flies and crawls and swims and slithers, and Jesus carefully crafted each and every one of them. Solomon loved the shade of trees and even the sprout of weeds. And they are the master strokes of King Jesus himself. Solomon had peace and prosperity in his land. And yet Jesus purchased peace and prosperity. He didn't use administrative might to bring this sort of peace. No, he used the violence of a Roman cross giving himself for his subjects to pay the penalty of their sin. The result wasn't just a few decades of peace. It was a forever peace, a peace with God that goes on and on and on into eternity. At the cross, King Jesus took the penalty and replaced it with the plenty of heaven. And King Jesus has a kingdom with even broader borders than King Solomon. Solomon pushed out the regions that he controlled, and yet King Jesus, he drew all people to himself. And in heaven one day, there will be a great multitude, too great to count, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He will rule over an entire new heaven, a new earth, and he will have a city at which the nations themselves will bring their glory into and be blessed. How happy are the subjects of King Jesus. They have lasting peace. They have eternal life. They have all the riches of heaven to enjoy forever. A golden age without end. Brothers and sisters, maybe this week you find yourself weary and anxious, tired of living in this world and all the cares that come with it. Would you remember, would you remember the age to come under the wise King Jesus? One of my favorite songs comes from Keith and Kristen Getty. It's called, There is a Higher Throne. It helps me to picture what it will be like one day in that glorious kingdom under the glorious King Jesus. And there we'll find our home, our life before the throne. We'll honor him in perfect song where we belong. He'll wipe each tear-stained eye as thirst and hunger die. The lamb becomes our shepherd king. We'll reign with him. Brothers and sisters, the recipe for success, it will be executed to perfection in the eternal kingdom of the eternal king, King Jesus. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and the way that it speaks to us the way nothing else can. Thank you for how it buoys our souls when it feels as if we are sinking. Thank you for the way that it reminds us that better days are ahead and even fortifies our hearts so that we can live as your ambassadors right here and right now. I pray that you would do that work in each of us. Would you allow the glory of the golden age to come in the new heavens and new earth? Would you allow it to radiate out from each of your preciously bought citizens of heaven? Would you let us be your instruments in this world to seek the peace of the city we are in and to tell people of the good king we serve? Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray for that day to come when your reign will not just be something we speak of as something that is breaking into this world, but will be something that is seen and known by all. That the day when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. Help us to be faithful until that day, Lord Jesus. We ask you to help us. In your mighty name, amen.